Um, Jean-Philippe Rameau was born in 1683 and, as is gen and generally regarded, really, as the heir to Jean-Baptiste Lully, who had died three years after Rameau was born. Uh, Rameau was intend originally intended to be a lawyer, but his musical interests evidenced themselves when he was a young man, and his father was persuaded to send him to Italy, where he stayed for a short time in Milan. Back in France, uh, we know very little about his private life, but we do know that he began to work as a violinist in travelling musical companies, then as an organist in a number of provincial cathedrals, before eventually moving to that city where all good Frenchmen hope to go, including best Americans as well, which of course is Paris. He arrived there for the first time in 1706. And there he published his earliest known compositions, pieces for the harpsichord. In 1709, he moved back to Dijon to take over his father's job as the organist in the main church in Dijon. And in 1722, he returned to Paris for good and published his most important work of music theory, A Treatise on Harmony. There was another book on theory, more harpsichord pieces, and in a curious way, he becomes very much the centre of intellectual life uh, uh, when he returns to Paris. Um, however, it isn't until he's almost 50 that he begins to compose first for the stage. He was finally inspired at uh, almost 50 to write a tragedy en musique, which was, of course, the most prestigious form of French uh, uh, opera. Uh, and Hippolyte et Arrécy was first performed at the Académie Royale de Musique in October the 1st, 1733. Thereafter, he wrote opera ballet, Les Indes Galantes, for example, comedies, platé, and tragedy on musique, including tonight's piece, Castor and Pollux, in 1737. Well, we have a range of guests. Uh, we're going to be joined in a while by uh, the singer Yassi Husk, uh, who's going to perform two pieces from the opera, along with a member of the English National Opera music staff, Nicholas Ansdell Evans. They're busy working on stage at the moment. Um, so they'll join us as soon as they can. In the meantime, we begin our evening with Professor Graham Sadler. He's Emeritus Professor at Hull University, a leading authority on French Baroque music, and his research interests include editing and performance practice of Renaissance and Baroque periods. And it is Graham who's prepared the edition of Castor and Pollux that we're going to hear tonight. So will you please welcome Professor Graham Sadler. Graham, can I begin by asking you, why do we think that Rameau began to write operas so late? Uh, well, as you say, it was uh, when he was almost 50 that he started. And uh, one of his earliest biographers said, uh, Rameau started composing at the age of uh, opera at the age of 50, the age at which the common man begins to decay. <laughs> now, this we might think of as a bit of an exaggeration, or perhaps less so in the 18th century than it is now. Unfortunately, he lived for another 30 years and wrote another 20-something operas. So we have all of those. But really, I think the answer to the question is he's a classic late developer. And uh, he dropped out of school without completing the course. He, as you said, he went off to Italy. We don't know what he did there, how long he stayed. He drifted around in the south of France doing a jo uh, jobs for a few years at a time. And then it's only when he goes and settles in uh, Clermont in, uh, in the Auvergne that he starts getting really interested in writing uh, about music theory. And I think that side of his output is one of the most important things that he ever did. Uh, it, it actually transformed the way in which we all um, uh, regarded how harmony works, how, how harmonies relate to each other. 
But the, but the fact was that uh, he, all the time, he said uh, to a young composer that he, all the time, he felt that a lack of uh, confidence, self-confidence in doing this. He said, I worked at the opera only at 50, and I still didn't think myself capable of doing so. And yet I, I tried, I, I, I went on at it, and I succeeded. And this was advice to a young composer, you know, don't give up if you're, if you're lacking in self-confidence. Was part of the problem, perhaps, that standing behind him was the kind of giant of the previous generation, Lully? Absolutely, because these, these works have been um, written in the late 17th century, fifth, well, 50 years before Ramo started, and yet they were still in the repertory, and they were formed year in, year out, and they were the, the gold standard against which everything else uh, that was written at the opera, produced at the opera, was compared. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. I think that's, that, uh, that, that's part of his problem, that he, he wanted to measure up to this, and yet he didn't want to be a mere imitator of Lully. When he eventually writes his first opera, Hippolyte Arécy, what's the response amongst the French audience in Paris? Well, it was absolute pandemonium. I think <laughs> that uh, French audiences tend to uh, divide into, into groups uh, very easily. And I think those people who've been brought up on the kind of the beautiful simplicity of Lully uh, just found Rameau just absolutely uh, out of this world. I mean, they, either they loved it or they hated it. And one person actually wrote and said, I'm, I'm, I'm racked, my nerves are flayed by this, by this new music. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, you get these two groups of, of uh, partisans, one called the Lulist, who are the supporters of the old style, and then the other is called the, the Ramist, who are the supporters of Ramo. And then they suddenly decide, they, they, uh, the Lulist call them the Ramoneur, which is actually a rather rude word, it means uh, chimney sweep. And yet the, 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 Ramo, the Ramis suddenly decide, we're going to call ourselves Ramoneur. And so <laughs> proudly they use this rather derogatory uh, term to, to characterize their group. There is a sense perhaps in which the, the, the Lulists um, are, are beating Rama with a well-known French stick, which is that really he's far too Italian for his, for his own good French sense. Yes, that's true. And I think part of this was the, the sheer forceful nature of what he wrote and, and the complexity of his harmonic idiom, which actually was very, very different from uh, anything that they'd come across before in opera at any rate. And, I mean, really, uh, the, some of the performers actually mutinied uh, at the first performances of Bipolit. They refused to sing some of the really... Um, chromatic, weird progressions that he'd given for them to, to sing. So these actually had to be cut out and were never reinstated, actually, until the 20th century. We need some help, I think. These extraordinarily different forms um, that, that, that characterise French um, uh, opera at the time. I mean... Let's begin with an opera ballet. What exactly is an opera ballet? Ah, well, now, opera ballet, is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like all French opera. It has a very important element of dancing in it, uh, right through for every single French opera from the, its beginnings right up to the revolution that that is true of. And that's why when Wagner and Verdi take their operas to Paris, uh, they have to insert ballets because that was what was expected. But an opera ballet is a rather peculiar form in which every uh, one of the four or five acts has got a different plot, but they're all related to one another by some overarching general theme. So you might, for example, write a, an opera ballet called The Elements, and so you'd have one act devoted to air, one to earth, one to fire, one to water, and, and the prologue would actually sh show you the kind of relationship between the four, the, the four elements in that way. And in the case of Les Anne Galantes, which you've mentioned, this is perhaps best translated as the amorous 
indies or or love attitudes to love in far flung parts. And so <laughs> sounds like a, uh, like a kind of package holiday. Yeah, absolutely. It? One act takes place on a Turkish island in the Pacific. One act takes part, place in a Persian flower market. Another one on a Peruvian volcano. And the fourth one, this is the Indies, you recall, um, a forest in North America. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what is the significance between that form and something like a tragedy en musique like Castro and Bollocks, which we're here tonight? Yes, well, this is, I mean, whereas the opera ballet has uh, uh, a different plot for each of the acts, uh, the tragedy en musique has one continuous plot that goes right through the five acts, the normal five act structure that you get in, 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 in French opera. And you get a rather more serious, ele more elevated tone. But actually, the individual components are really very similar. That the, again, the, the tragedy on music, as we'll hear tonight, gives a very important part to the dance uh, and, uh, and also the, all the other elements that you get in the uh, opera ballet. And is the dance a moment of, of stasis, of quiet, in which we reflect, or is it part of propelling the action? What is the role of the dance? Well, the convention in French opera right from the start was that you had a, a divertissement in every one of the acts. And so it was the librettist's task to devise a convincing pretext for bringing in the divertissement. And it would be in the divertissement that you get the vocal, the vocal virtuosity, if there was any, uh, the use of the chorus quite a lot, and also, um, of course, the dance. So uh, really, the, mostly, the... Uh, the 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 the, the more enlarges on the action at that point. So, for example, in Castor tonight, in Act One, um, the first act divertissement celebrates the forthcoming wedding of Castor. The second one. Um, it has to do with uh, the athlete's uh, demonstration of their prowess because they've defeated the, the enemy. The third one, I think, though, is the most interesting one in this respect because it does show how the divertissement, when cunningly used, can actually further the plot or enhance the characterization. This is where Pollux is about to set off to try and rescue his brother from Hades, and he's been given permission to go down there by his father, Jupiter. Um, but uh, this means that, of course, if he goes down to Hades, he's going to forfeit his immortality. So Jupiter said, look, watch out what you're doing. You know, you realize what you're losing. And he summons in the goddess Hebe, who is the god of uh, eternal youth. And uh, she brings in these uh, celestial... Um, the celestial goddesses, and they uh, dance around him in this rather seductive way, showing what he's losing, and they sing songs actually underlining this fact. And at each stage, he pushes them away. He said, no, uh, my resolve is not going to weaken, and they dance around him again, and then, no, he pushes them away. Finally, he breaks the garlands that they put around his necks, and he, he actually uh, uh, walks off to the entrance of Hades. And so that's, that's been an essential part of the action at that point. Should, should we see that as an example, just as, uh, as Rameau uh, pushes the harmonic language that he inherits, um, of him pushing the form of opera too, of wanting constantly to do something new and change things? Uh, I think so, although, actually, to be honest, to be fair, even in Lully's day, there are a number of the operas in which the divertissement is used in a rather similar way, not with interruptions of the sort that I've uh, shown, but where the, the, it actually is intensifying the characterization or furthering the plot in some sort of way. I mentioned earlier, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about Rameau is that eventually, when he becomes established 
in Paris, um, that he becomes friendly with, with Voltaire. He has a notorious row with Rousseau. He's absolutely the centre of French intellectual life. He's involved with Diderot and the other encyclopedists. It's extraordinary how he does this. Yes. Well, interestingly, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Voltaire because Voltaire was at the first night of, of his first opera and he wrote to one of his friends saying, uh, the opera's by somebody called Rameau. <laughs> Uh, who has the misfortune to know more about music than Lully does. <laughs> and this is kind of very much tongue-in-cheek, because, and, and to begin with, he was dumbfounded by this, but uh, he, uh, very quickly he offered uh, Romo a libretto to uh, an opera which would have been on the subject of Samson and Delilah, but unfortunately, for various reasons, on a sacred, sacred theme, the, uh, the religious authorities took against this, and it was banned. But interestingly, part of it actually survives in the libretto of uh, Saint-Sens' opera, Samson and Delilah, which takes a very similar line in, in, in its story. What was the quarrel with Rousseau all about? Well, now, Rousseau um, fancied himself as a bit of a composer, and he was a tremendous fan of Rameau to begin with, absolutely besotted by his music. But he wrote this opera called Les Muses Lyriques, and... Uh, he frankly uh, wasn't very experienced at this time, and so he got uh, another composer called Philidor to write the instrumental bits and accompaniments, and he showed this proudly to Rameau in a rather public environment, and uh, Rameau looked at it, and in the way that composers quite often are, really, really didn't, he didn't uh, suffer fools gladly, and he said, parts of this opera are by a great master of music, and the rest is by a complete ignorance who, ignoramus who doesn't know the first thing about music. And it was absolutely a, a devastating sort of put down and, and Rousseau never forgave him for that. And as a result, um, he never wrote about French opera or especially about Rameau and whether his music and his theories without actually trying to get his own back there. And I think we have to read Rousseau's writings on music with that in mind, otherwise we get a very skewed idea. We're going to talk in a moment about, about Castor and Pollux in some detail, but I think it, the audience, after they've seen and heard tonight's performance, will wonder very simply, why was it this, this, this extraordinary music, this powerful music, this intensely beautiful music, this lyric music, fell out of favour so spectacularly from, I suppose, the French Revolution until really comparatively recently? Yes, yes. If you look at the repertory of the Paris Opera in uh, around about 1750, so that's once Rameau has really established himself as a composer, you'll see that it, uh, practically nobody else gets a look in. His operas were, were the new ones and also old ones that were being revived, constantly revived, absolutely dominated the, uh, the, the repertory at that time. Uh, and. Um, I, I suppose it was the lack of variety. Um, and one of his early biographers said, people had got fed up of worshipping all the time at the same altar. Uh, we needed something new, they're thinking. And then suddenly, the operas of Gluck arrive mm. in Paris in the 1770, and Italians mm. like uh, Sacchini, Piccini. And some, you've got this huge breath of fresh air coming in, a, a totally different aspect of, of, of opera, which they'd never seen before. They were given French texts, and so they were kind of nationalized in that way, naturalized. And as a result, very, very quickly, all of the old repertoire, going right back to the days of Lully, some of these operas have been in, this, in the repertory now for 70, 80, 90, in one case, 104 years before it finally fell. But it was basically the new revolution uh, established by the arrival of, 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 uh, of Gluck's operas and the, and the Italians that came with him. 
Well, we're going to talk in detail next about Castro and Pollock, and I thought I might just remind you of a little of the essential information about these two boys that you need to know to make sense of events. We should begin by saying that there are, in fact, two editions of Castro and Pollock. There is the first version, which was the one that was performed in 1737, and there is a revised version from 1754, and it is the 1754 version that we're going to hear tonight. Uh, you'll remember that Castor and Pollux are, of course, twin brothers, but they had different fathers, which does make one wonder a little bit about biology in the <laughs> ancient world, but never mind. Um, Pollux was fathered by Zeus or Jupiter, while Castor's father was King Tyndareus of Sparta. Uh, their mother was Leda, whom Zeus, Jupiter, you'll remember, visited in one of his many disguises, this time as a swan. Uh, and it's sometimes said that a giant egg was the product of this nocturnal encounter, out of which were born not only um, one of the boys, but Helen of Troy and Clytemnestra simultaneously. You might say a real nest full of ancient troubles there. <laughs> For the Romans, uh, when Castor was killed, Pollux asked Jupiter to let him share his own immortality with his twin so that they might stay together, and they were indeed transformed into the constellation of stars, which we call, the Romans called the Gemini. Rameau <clears throat> begins his 1754 version of the opera, which is, as I say, the one we're going to hear tonight, with Phoebe bemoaning the fact that Pollux, the man she loves, is betrothed to her rival, effectively, Teleia. She will get what her heart desires, though, by conspiring with the enemy of the, of the more, King uh, Linceus. But Teleia really loves Castor, so a generous Pollux gives up the girl to his brother uh, quite happily. Unfortunately, as the wedding celebrations are continuing, they're violently interrupted by Linceus, taking his opportunity from uh, information, presumably from Febe, and a battle breaks out in which Castor is killed. Castor is determined to bring his brother back to life from the underworld. He eventually does, and Zeus grants both brothers immortality and transforms them into stars. So the girls don't get their men, but we're given a new constellation of stars. <laughs> and a quick whirlwind tour of the story. Um, which of the two versions, Graham, do you prefer? 1733, 1754? Well, if I was... Um if it was for a stage performance, I'd definitely go for the 1754 because it's much more taut, the dramatic pace is much more rapid. And it's partly because uh, in the original version, which was in five acts, it was preceded by a, 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 um, a prologue which celebrated the Peace of Vienna. So, of course, that was no longer relevant. And by 1754, people didn't have prologues anyway. Uh, so, in uh, getting rid of the prologue, they decided that uh, the opera would start too abruptly, just with the uh, mausoleum uh, showing that Castor was already dead. So they added uh, a sort of prehistory to all of this, as you've just uh, described, uh, the, the leading up to the wedding and then the death in battle of Castor. But that meant that they had to, therefore, take the material of the remaining five acts and compress it into four. So each one is one further on, except that acts three and four have been compressed into one, one act. But they, that meant that the opera still had to last about the same length. So they had to cut out a huge amount of dialogue, mainly in recitative. And certainly, I think, for a modern audience, that works very well, because the events actually go uh, succeed each other really much more quickly than they did originally. But for a, 
concert performance, I think I might go still for the original one. And in fact, that's the version that uh, William Christie has recorded because musically it's a bit richer. Uh, a lot of the of the best music, actually, strangely enough, some of the most beautiful, most memorable music is in the is in the prologue, which was cut. And of course, some of that has actually we shall hear it tonight because it was it was added, it was sort of recycled into Act Four. Uh, but a lot of it still was cut, and some of the of the uh, set pieces were trimmed a little bit, so you've got a richer version of them in 1737, but you've got a dramatically more lean and athletic uh, 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 plot now that, and, and uh, a dramatic pace. So it looks as if Rameau has learned quite a lot about, about, about the theatrical, about the dramatic. Yeah, absolutely, yes. He, uh, every time that the operas were revived, he would actually revive them in this way, and quite often it was all in order to improve the dramatic pace. Does the, has the music changed between the two versions too? I mean, you know, this is his first opera. By the time he gets to 1754, he's really quite experienced. Yes, yes. And you'll hear it, I think, most of all in the kind of orchestral style because uh, by 1754, Roma was using woodwinds in a most remarkable way, getting having woodwind lines sustained behind the strings in a way that anticipates Haydn and Mozart. Uh, certainly quite some quite virtuoso writing for the, for the woodwinds. Whereas, although... The, there was plenty of woodwind writing in the original version. It didn't have that sort of character. And so you get a, 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 you get a kind of feeling of time travelling as you move between material which was in the original and material which was added in 1754. Uh, I quite like it, actually. It's suddenly you're not quite sure what sort of music you're about to hear. Things suddenly arrive <laughs> unexpectedly like that. Do, do you think also the theme of the opera changes between 1733 and 1754? I mean, you could say that in the first version, it's that great Baroque standby, love versus duty. Yes. But, but people have argued that in the, the later version, it becomes something that almost begins to hint at the magic flute. In yes. Which, in which our hero, Pollux, has to go through a series of trials. That's right. Well, those, those trials are there in act, the Act 3 divertissement in particular, in the original version, but they're enhanced this time, extended. So, yes, and I think that actually this... Uh, I might just touch on one aspect of Ramos work, which is actually a lot of the operas have very clear uh, links with uh, Freemasonry at the time. Not Castor, I don't think, but uh, several of them do have this kind of trial by ordeal uh, and a whole and, and uh, uh, quite a lot of other symbols of uh, Masonic practice and belief. And, and that, do we see that as being, uh, Rama was being part of the kind of the exactly the same Enlightenment project as Mozart was yes, part of? Yes, yes, quite so, yes. Now, how did you set about preparing your performing edition for, for tonight? These operas survive in sometimes as many as 40 or 50 different sources, and so the editor really has to go and look at all of these and decide which ones have the most authority. Uh, we, in the case of most of them, we don't have an autograph score which we can sort of say, well, that's the most authoritative one. But we do have um, printed editions, usually engraved scores, published really under the composer's own uh, control. He paid for them, he, he corrected the proofs. So we know that that has his authority. The problem with them is that they generally don't have the inner parts of the orchestra or the chorus. And so if you perform them like that, it would be like performing a kind of skeleton. So you have to go and find sources which actually contain the inner parts and establish that they are inner parts which actually emanate from Ramo himself rather than somebody else, uh, which is not that difficult to do. So I think we can establish a, a, a text which is really pretty authoritative by this means. But actually it breaks all of the rules of uh, critical editing. If you applied those, you just couldn't get a, an adequate edition. 
And, and do you give choices to your performers as an editor based upon the materials you've looked at? I mean, is, is the text, as they say, fashionably unstable? Um, well, I haven't in this particular case, because when I did it, I originally did this for the English Bark Festival back in the 1980s, and so I just did the one version. But certainly it is now much more the, the thing to, uh, uh, to allow the performer to navigate through different versions of the work in such a way that you don't have to respect exactly what the editor has said uh, he thinks is the best version. You can, do, you can pick and choose uh, as, at will, and I think that's a really very good way of doing things. Ladies and gentlemen, you will see the musicians join us. We shall come to them in a moment. In the meantime, if you would like to ask um, uh, Graham questions, we have the usual roving microphone, uh, roving to the front. Put your hand up and catch my eye, and, and we will get the microphone to you as soon as Who would like to ask a question? We're going to be English as usual and sit on our hands. Well done. Why the declamatory st um, style in the French operatic style is so ingrained? I didn't quite catch the beginning of that. Could you find the declamatory style within the French that, tradition yeah, is, right. is so particular? Yeah? That's right. Yes, actually, a very good point. Thank you. Uh, I think if you've not seen or heard a Rameau opera before, but you've actually encountered uh, Italian opera seria of the sort you hear in Handel or Vivaldi, I think the recitative is going to be one of the aspects that is, that is most surprising and most different. Right from, I mean, Rameau actually really picks up the recitative style established by Lully, and Lully actually went to hear the classical actors at what became the Comédie Française, uh, declaiming the plays of Corneille and Racine, these wonderful great tragedies, and they had a very declamatory sing-song style of, of, of declaiming this. So it's not the kind of quick-fire, rap rapid delivery of res recitativo secco, but actually you get these contours uh, and very, very distinct rhythms which are notated um, in, 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 in the scores. Now, I think it's a mistake to perform these two rigidly, and yet there is a, a distinction of rhythm because it's the, in the nature of the French language. The, it comes from the nature of declaimed French. What happens with Rameau is that uh, the uh, musical style associated with the recitative gets much more complex and the, and the richness of the harmony and also the kind of musical element of the declamation is much more enhanced. Rameau said um, something like, Lully needs actors, I need singers. And I think that sums up the difference between them. Do we have another question? Thank you. Another question. I suspect people... Oh, yes, one that will then will satisfy our hunger for music. <laughs> Can you tell us something about the chorus, and in particular what gender it was? What gender? Well, it was a mixed chorus, uh, actually uh, very mixed, and certainly uh, the women were very feminine. Um, most of them were mistresses of this or that noble, uh, some of them mistresses of several uh, nobles at the same time. So, yes, this, this is a huge difference between French and Italian opera, the, the chorus from right from the start, uh, not just in the divertissement, but also uh, taking part in the action, acting as spectators, reacting to what's going on. It's actually... Um, a, a very modern concept, I think, of the use of the chorus compared with a lot of 18th century opera. Um, there would have been, in Ramos' day, something like 40 singers. It depended a little bit, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. And they were, all of the women sang the top part. 
And then what we would think of as the alto part was actually sung by very high tenors, singing not in falsetto, but singing actually in their chest voices. So you get a very strong uh, alto line in the, if, it's, if it's done in that way, uh, and then tenor and bass. Um, but yes, that was how the chorus was set up. Actually, there's a lot of evidence that by Ramos' time, these were, uh, I mean, these were employees of the Royal Academy of Music, and, and they, they, they established their rights. And one of their rights was to stand at the side of the stage when they sang with their arms crossed and not to do anything in the way of acting. So what you, uh, you know, the, the possibilities were there for them to react in this way, but in practice, it seems they just got a stood stop still, <laughs> sang, and then went out, which is a bit sad, but um, that's one aspect of historical performance practice that I think we'll quietly ignore. <laughs> Sandler, thank you very much indeed. Um, absolutely, yes. But, but stay with us, stay with us. Um, we've been joined by, 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 by two musicians, uh, Jesse Husk, who covers the role of Telaya in this production, and Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's a member of the English National opera music stuff and they're going to perform two pieces and I'm not quite certain what you're going to start with. Oh, well I thought we'd start with something snappy so we're going to start with the rise. This, this aria I think was um, in the original yes. version. Yes, yes. Um, so this is 1737. But yes. it's been put yes. in yes. <laughs> Cheated the, a little. This was in the original version and it's been added for this evening. It's too good to miss.
Thank you. From, from the end of the opera, when, when, when the two brothers are transformed into stars, yeah. arise Beloved sparkling stars. Beloved you here. Um, who is your character? Who is Telaya? Um, she is the daughter of, of gods, and she is um, torn between two brothers, really. She's beautiful. She's meant to be one of the most beautiful girls alive, I think it says in the opera. And um, she is in love with Castor, and she is forced to marry Pollux. Um, so you get this argument throughout the whole opera about what's right, what she should do and what she really wants to do and what ends up happening. Is she more than simply a traditional suffering woman caught between two men? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that would be incredibly boring to watch, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, and certainly in this opera, um, she's much, much more. You see so many facets of, of um, the dilemma that she's in. Um, and, and you see the real turmoil between having to marry Pollux and being in love with Castor. And then she goes through the grief of losing Castor as well. So you see all kinds of... You see her at her worst in this opera, I think, as a character, um, going through the worst things that could happen to her. Uh, we've been watching um, Sills from, from the production, uh, which will, of course, tell the audience that this is in a sort of contemporary modern dress. Um, is that a good thing? Is it... um, well... And I notice you're wearing green shoes. I am. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about green and pink? Um, well, uh, throughout the whole opera, green, pink, purple is, is used quite strongly. Um, it is in modern dress. It, um, I don't think it hinders the storytelling at all. I think um, certainly some of the uh, acrobatics one has to do on the mound of earth that is helped to be in a slightly shorter dress. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what does Ramo require from his singers? I mean, how tough is, 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 is the vocal line? Well, for me personally, learning Ramo, I'd never done, you know, early music for me had been early Mozart or Handel until looking at the Rameau. So it was tough to get your head around the ornaments at first. I mean, the... The Bressets especially have a lot of ornamentation in. Um, he's quite specific about his ornamentation. He, he wanted certain things at certain points. He is quite specific about how many notes per trill. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's three. So there's a whole process of having to memorise, oh, well, he would push a four-note trill there. And, of course, it had to be changed from the important words in the French to the important words in the English. So for me personally, it was a challenge. But then... Once you've learnt that, the freedom is actually amazing because um, you can ornament on the words that you feel most strongly uh, on that particular night. There are, of course, ornaments that you do always, but there are ornaments that work better on certain nights when you're feeling a different way. Um, so it is, it is freeing. Vocally, the line isn't particularly high. Um, the range is only up to an A, I think. It's not, it's not a high range at all. Um, it doesn't go particularly low. So you're in the middle of the voice, and I think characteristically the middle of the voice is where all the emotion happens. Um, certainly when you look at somebody like Mozart, Achich um, feels in the middle of the voice. It's, it's where the emotion is. So, What are you going to sing next week? I'm going to do the long, slow, sad one from the, uh, I think it's the second act, the beginning of the second act, um, where she's just realised that Castor is in fact dead and she's mourning his loss. So this is sorrow and death and we should get our hankies out. Indeed. Great, we're ready.
Nicholas, come and join. Come and join us. I'm in your chair. How do you prepare singers for, for this particular music? Oh goodness! Um, I think Jassy's outlined some of the uh, issues that are special to Rameau, and of course, for us here at English National Opera, this is a totally new departure. So it's been a learning experience for all of us, myself included. It's the first time I've worked on French Baroque. Obviously, the ornamentation is an issue. Um, you haven't actually heard any of the famous recitative um, because, because we can't sing you, because they're all with more than one character, so we can't sing you more than about one line. Um, you have to wait for that. But um, 
the, obviously, uh, the, it's closely molded around the French. So Amanda Holden's done a lovely translation, which really, I don't know how she does it, but she's managed to make the important words in the French coincide with important words in the English so that the lines work. Um, you have to learn it strictly, I think. You have to, to be strict with the rhythms when you learn it. They're quite complicated rhythms because it keeps on changing from four to two to three. So in fact, you get effectively get phrases with fives and sevens in. Um, so it's tricky. You have to learn that strictly before you can free it up. So it's a long process. We've been rehearsing for many weeks with the main cast, and we need it. You need to sing it in. You need to internalise it in the body. What have you come to really admire about the score? You say, you know, like everybody in the, in the company, you came to it new. What, what is it that sort of stays in your oh, head? Oh, it's been a joy. I mean, that aria, which is yeah. for strings and bassoon, was much admired by Berlioz. And I have to say, when I play it on the piano, it's impossible not to take it into a different century. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the string harmonies are always rich. The, 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 the ornaments, the appoggiaturas, the, the leanings are, 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 are create wonderful dissonances. It's remarkably expressive music. Um, it really gets under your skin. And uh, I look forward to doing some more. <laughs> I've got a last question, Graham, for you, really, which is a bit of a naughty question, because I'm going to quote something you said back to you. You said that you think that the, the, the 1733, 1754 version of this opera, the one we're going to hear tonight, is, in fact, Ram, one of Rano's crowning achievements. What is it? if you had to explain quickly and briefly, what is it you think that makes it a crowning achievement? Well, that was certainly the, the 18th century judgment by the time Rameau died, uh, and it had become his most popular opera. And uh, I, I, would, I would make a good case for quite a few of the others as well, but for different reasons. I think uh, Ippolite Arisi comes closer to real tragedy, and the, the music of, of Dardanus, I think, is even richer than that of Castor. Uh, Le Boreade, it articulates uh, all sorts of very uh, modern ideas for the time. And yet, I think there's something about Castor. It's got this beautifully paced uh, relationship between music and drama. I don't think any of the uh, other operas have this uh, constant conflict of emotion between the characters for all sorts of really quite genuine reasons. And one of them being this very unusual idea of the brotherly love of the two twins, that, that, one of the, that they have this kind of conflict of generosity. They're trying to outdo their generosity, giving up their girlfriend, giving up their immortality in order that they, one of them cannot bear to be down in Hades, knowing that the other one uh, cannot bear to be on Earth, rather, while the other one is down in Hades. And so it is finally this generosity that causes Jupiter to relent He's so impressed by the way they've done this that he elevates Castor to, to immortality himself and they become the heavenly twins. But it is this kind of um, perfection of, uh, of, of construction and also the beautiful interweaving of drama and uh, music that I think makes it a real star in, uh, in Ramo's output. I think that idea of, of, of generosity is perhaps a moral to 
adorned a contemporary tale too. Um, ladies and if you, as I know you will, enjoy this evening enormously, you might also like to know that the University College Opera Society are presenting a second uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau opera. It's A Conte et ses Fils, and the dates, and there's a little uh, thing on your seat, the dates are in March, warmly to be commended. In the meantime, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being here uh, and being such an attentive, thoughtful audience. Um, our thank yous to Graham Sadler and to Yassi Husk and to Nicholas Ansel Evans for being with us this evening. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>